my morning time is what I call my writing room time. And my afternoon time is my war room time. So every day is war room at startup. You, you probably know that too. Yeah. War room, you manage the forecast, you do the business review, execute the change management, structure a deal, interview customers, rally your team, resolve your conflicts with your CEOs and peers and all that, just never a dull day. And then the next morning, I will extract all the raw signals and material from this battlefield activities. And I take that to my writing room. So that's where I built the framework for the long term. And what is ClickUp's Act 2, Act 3, maybe Act 4? Right? How do we build a coherent metric story with our board and our future investors? So how do I be the keeper and the reiterator for our CEO's vision? Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Thank you, Fat Joe, and welcome back to Run the Numbers. My name is CJ Gustafson, and I just had three freezer waffles with lots of syrup, which makes it really hard to do this intro. On this podcast, I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Dan Zhang, the CFO of ClickUp, one of the most successful team collaboration tools on the market. I'm a customer. Holla! After starting her career as a journalist in Beijing, Dan zigged and then zagged to climb the finance and ops ladders at Amazon, Zynga, and AppDynamics on her way to ClickUp. On this episode, we talk about why general life balance is a myth, true, frameworks for managing emotional reactions in a high-stress job, prioritizing time for long-term planning amongst the chaos of day-to-day ops, spotting top talent, and coaching junior team members on how to effectively ask their boss for inputs, being transparent about the company's financials with employees and treating everyone like adults. And I would say that Dan is a master communicator. She gets very tactical about how she's communicated both good and bad messages to the employee base. Dan also tells us an amazing story about her mom, one of the first female financial analysts in China who broke down walls for her to succeed and climb the corporate ladder. Talking to Dan was really refreshing. She pulls no punches and is honest about the level of stress you have as a CFO. She does not gloss over the tough times and she makes sure to celebrate the good ones. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turned 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash metrics. Oh yeah, your boy loves metrics. That's netsuite.com slash metrics to get your KPI checklist. That's netsuite.com slash metrics. I really need this, guys. Please go to netsuite.com slash metrics. Woo! 
Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. <laughs> I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using ThoroughPass's compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to High Trust and SOC 2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S.com. Tell them your boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. Welcome back to Run the Numbers. Dan Zhang, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, CJ. Good to be on here. Thanks for having me. So I don't usually have people introduce themselves and go through their backgrounds, but I have to make a special exception this time around. You were a journalist before coming a CFO. Do I have that right? Wow. My mom used to tell me that if you connect yourself with the numbers, you will always have a job. And I didn't listen to her. That so my first job out of college was a journalist in China. And very quickly, I realized that you should always listen to your mom. I got very tired of reporting news and only got to see, you know, just the snapshots of some semi-true stories. So I want to experience the time series of something remarkable. I want to be in the story. And I believe that the business world is where the people build dreams, shape lives, and have a deep impact on the global level. So I came to the States for business school and never looked back. So it took me some zigzag to get here and join your podcast today, CJ. My mom is always giving me advice and she's definitely listening right now. So shout out to all the moms listening to Run the Numbers. But it probably did teach you how to ask questions the right way. I kind of look at, you know, FP&A people and finance people, I'm stealing this from Razak Jallo of Flowcast, but embedded journalists within the org to a certain degree. Yeah, that's right. I think finance is inherently a very journalistic function in the business. I like how you said, though, that business is kind of where the stories happen. That definitely rings true. And uh, you've been out on on a really cool ride so far at ClickUp. And, And congrats on the promotion to CFO. I was pumped to see that. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I have to ask you about your ops background, which kind of led you there. And so you told me that you expect more from finance teams than just doing analysis and giving a recommendation. Can you go a bit deeper on that statement? Yeah. So I think that's come back into the, the trade side I look in the talent. I think that there's one thing that I look in the people is caring. Like you got to care so much that you're obsessed with the results. A lot of finance people or team, they tend to run a bunch of data analysis and they end that with a recommendation. Right? So they're the very typical management consulting style. And that just drives me nuts that making the recommendation ending is like keeping that glass door between a finance team and the business reality. I just feel like it's not personal enough. If everything is look at the data and then make the recommendation. So I require my team to be very intimate with the operations details. 
what could go wrong if we go with this recommendation, right? How do we de-risk that? What signals can give us the early indication that your recommendation is working? If they don't have a solid answer and haven't thought through all these different scenarios, different permutations, meaning that this finance team or the analysts, they haven't partnered deeply enough with the business stakeholders. So highly likely the recommendations was just made in the corporate office, you know, spreadsheets, analysis in the ivory tower. So I just really want to see people putting that emotion, that excitement back into their analysis or business case. Yes, usually finance is a more objective judge on the play field, but I truly believe that they need to run with the players and be part of the business, right? Because at the end of the day, it's your credibility on the line there. It's kind of like if I wanted recommendations, I could just hire McKinsey. But if you work here, we need follow through. Exactly. Finance needs to also breathe in that business oxygen right together with the peers in the trenches. I really think it's important how you pointed out the risk assessment that goes along with it. Like what could go wrong if we make this recommendation? It's kind of like I'm not just delegating that out to you and like hopefully it all works out. Have you ever seen this in action? Have there ever been scenarios where like someone didn't think through the risk part, but had kind of this bright, shiny idea that they gave the org to run with? I think that that's what I see the most in my first three FPNA job in the big companies. So I started out my finance career in a large tech companies, Amazon, Zynga, and Expedia. And that's mostly the pattern that you've seen, right? So based on, you know, the trending, based on this upcase and lowercase scenarios that this is like to throw the dart on the board. So what you can see is just this very vanilla approach, right? They don't dig the pain enough, right? So every finance people, they want to be the strategy voice in the room. Yeah. You've heard that a lot, right? They change your title from FNA to strategic finance. But what does strategy really mean? Right? So strategy to me, that has to start from a problem statement, a challenge and a diagnosis, right? So how can you do an accurate diagnosis if you don't even understand the symptoms? Right. So if the strategy doesn't start with a diagnosis, then meaning that you're even trying to heal the wrong disease. So that's often the case that you see that they don't get it wrong because they start the strategy session from a framework, not something like this is something burning. This is something bleeding in the business. What was it like working at Amazon? What what did you learn there? Any frameworks or principles that came out of it that still impact you today? Absolutely. I think the number one is work ethic. No one works harder than Zonia. I still remember this one sentence that the trainer told us. How can you be big and not suck? Right? So like, <laughs> there is this that, that should be a bumper company. sticker. That's yes. awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they still are having this very deeply believed and ingrained principle is there's no small details, right? Nothing is small at Amazon. They deeply care about every customer and VPs, right? Bezos expects every VP to know every single detail about his or her function, right? No matter how many hundreds or thousands of engineering or business person this person is managing, you walk into a meeting with Jeff, you're supposed to know every single detail. You can never delay with, I'll get back to you or let me ask my team. So I think that that's a very important principle as well. And the third thing is having a backbone and this extreme ownership. I'll give you an example. I was invited to probably 30 people business review as an entry-level analyst at Amazon. And 
I was just like, okay, I'm here. Now I'm just listening, right? Seems like people are saying important things. And after the meeting, someone tapped on my shoulder and say, hey, I didn't hear you say anything. So what was your opinion? What was Mm. your inputs? So I was like, I I got added last minute and I was probably the lowest on the rank, right? In this meeting. And he was like, no, 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 you're here for a reason. That ownership mentality is so strong that constantly people will hold each other accountable, right? You're not the passenger, you're an owner, you're here to make a change. Not the passenger, the owner, that's a clip. I think ownership of the numbers and whatever your category is that you're working in at that time, like nailing that and just knowing it better than anybody else. I've always said that's the expansion path to get more responsibility. We had talked to uh, James Courier, who's a partner at NFX, and he was talking about marketplace businesses. It reminds me of how he said they start small, but he said, you may have this vision of like what you want to do eventually as a company. And it goes back to personal development too. But like, you can't just say, I'm going to be the best company in the world someday. Like if you want to be a convertible someday, you have to start on a skateboard and you have to wake up every day loving the skateboard. And I kind of take that back to personal development in the sense that if you want to be the best FP&A person, if they stick you with the product team to build out their budget, like you should know the product team stuff better than anybody at the drop of a hat. That's how you get to own both product and engineering. And now you have R&D and you can kind of go from there, but you have to love the skateboard before you can become the convertible. That's very well said. Amazon's famous for their recruiting, their business cases that they put people through. How do you think about recruiting for good talent today? And did working at Amazon impact that at all? I don't know if you've noticed that there is a famous picture on the whiteboard in the conference room of Amazon that says the Amazon way of communication. Right? So basically, it's very precise. You are only allowed to have four answers to any question, either yes or no or number or I don't know. I'll get back to you by when, and it better be a number. So those are four <laughs> things are only thing that's allowed in the Amazon conference room. So I think that's the biggest kind of learning of mine is communication. This is such a cliche word. And when you say, what are you looking for in talent? You say communication. I bet you 10 bucks, like every finance people's resume have communication skills on their resume, right? So what do I mean by Making communication a differentiated skill sets for a professional is when you can present your thoughts specifically, visually, and most importantly, contextually. And so in the context of a deep understanding of other people's paradigm and concerns, you can significantly increase the speed of advancing in your career. And I'll give you an example. So I'm a guest speaker for some business school. And here's a question I always ask the students. I give them a scenario. When you find an issue that is blocking you, what do you do? A, complain to your manager. Of course, everyone's smart is saying that's not the right answer. B, flag into your manager in a professional way and ask, what do you want me to do? And C is do the research, collect the data, bring your solution to your manager and say, hey, here is what I suggest we do next. Let me know what you think. So of course, everyone raise their hand and say, see, but I always ask, is there a forced answer? Do you want to go extra mile? So once in a while, not in every class, there would be a student do the extra mile communication. It sounds like this. So one student, his name is Mike, really stood out. He said, before I go to my manager, I will try to anticipate his concerns. Mm. I, I would guess 
what my manager would ask me about, and I would try to address it before he even asked me. And given my understanding of my manager's scope and his priorities, I will be very explicit about what I need. I know that my manager might be very busy, so I will say things like, I'm looking for you to help me influence CMO to unblock this purchase decision. So like to the dot. And after the chat, I will probably push for the next steps to take on some of the cognitive load of the decision-making for my manager. Even I'm not the decision-maker in this situation, I think it helps my manager and my team to make progress and arrive at a stronger decision. So that is the kind of communication. They consider things in a very rich context, and they are taking control of the possibility. That really stands out, and I think that's a skill set like everyone can practice and get better at. I want to hire Mike, wherever Mike is. I, I want, I want, <laughs> Mike, I want Mike, Mike is Mike my intern me. now. <laughs> oh, come on. All right. You got competition for Mike now. The forethought that goes into scenario planning, what somebody's going to ask back to you, that's like very higher level thinking. And it takes away like the burden that you're putting on someone else. I think early in my career, I would know that there was a problem. And before like trying to solve it on my own, I would almost just like, go parrot it back to my manager and tell them about it. Eventually, I remember the manager was Dasha. She's like, yeah, I know. But like, what are you going to do about it? What's the recommendation? Like, did you just get up automatically and come tell that to me? And I was like, shit, I definitely did that. Like I was, I was pretty useless in giving you the context around this or even going three steps deeper. So that example brings to light, like not just the first way you can think through something and make it better, but like three degrees after that to make it an easier load for your manager. Yeah, there's a key difference between the linear thinking and the second degree, even third degree thinking. Like I said, this is a skill sets everyone can practice, right? From the low stake decision in your life to the most important decision in business. And you can visually see the progress. I just pause and trying to think that three more, four more deeper questions about the situation in front of you. Do you think you can test for that? Because... I've fallen victim in the past to hiring like extremely smart people on paper, but then like they're almost too smart and get in their own way when it comes to like trying to give them something to work on. And they come back with just like, like I said, just giving you the problem back without thinking it through. Yeah, I think this is probably not that directly related to the IQ, the force power, mm. but it's more like an attitude, right? Yeah. So that I own this problem and I am honored to own this problem. So if I cannot solve this problem, that hurt my pride. So that obsession that you have over the quality of your output, over the quality of the results that you can drive, I don't think that's like IQ per se, but if you're a smart person and coupled with that trait, then you're unstoppable. I love how you framed it as attitude because it's not linked to IQ. It's just how you go about approaching the problem. And I can't believe I'm actually going to quote my Peloton instructor this morning because I hate all the quasi woo-woo stuff they say. But she said, (laughs) I don't have to, I get to. And I think it's the same way with work a lot of times. If you take Mm -hmm. ownership like, I don't have to do this. Like it's a burden. It's like, no, I get to do this. This is exciting. And like you said, I'm honored to be able to take it on. Yeah, it's all about rewire your, your mind. That's powerful. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. 
We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and RevRec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. Next one for you. you. You have a really unique view, Dan, of the org. You manage finance, RevOps, IT, and a bunch of other functional areas. How do you possibly balance taking a short-term view of the company versus a long-term view? I think doing a high-growth stage there is no long-term if you're not obsessed over the short-term execution. You really cannot develop a unique insights for long-term accurately if you're not deep enough in the thick of things every day. So that being said, short-term execution is like air. It just fills up the room, no matter how big the room is. So we really need to keep the long-term thinking in a separate room not in the same room. Otherwise, it will just like be occupied with the the short-term air. So that's how I structure my day. My morning time is what I call my writing room time. And my afternoon time is my war room time. So every day in the war room at startup, you you probably know that too. War room, you manage the forecast, you do the business review, execute the change management, structure a deal, interview customers, rally your team resolve your conflicts with your CEOs and peers and all that, just never a dull day. And then the next morning, I will extract all the raw signals and material from this battlefield activities. And I take that to my writing room. So that's where I built the framework for the long-term. Hey, how do we make sure that we're making investment to drive the doable growth? How can I not go wrong in the business? I need to have keep a very close eye on that. And what is ClickUp's Act 2, Act 3, maybe Act 4? How do we build a coherent metric story with our board and our future investors? So how do I be the keeper and the reiterator for our CEO's vision? So those are the things that you have to carve out time, keep them in in a separate room, and build that into your day-to-day cadence. This kind of thing can be just once a year or even once a quarter. You need to continuously refining that and just practice that. Okay, Dan, I need some tactical advice here because I'm going broke on the writer's room part at the moment. I'm letting too many meetings where it's just purely oxygen, 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 short-term stuff take up my day. How do you schedule this? Is it like every morning? Take me through it. Yeah, so I block my morning and I told my EA that this is my sacred time, right? So only the highest you know, priority. A lot of things are like, the sky's not going to fall if I don't have this meeting, if this meeting waits for two more hours, right? Dan can address that in the afternoon. You just need to safeguard it and let people know that this is not just important for you. It's important for the business because the CFOs are the people who need to constantly climb the tree. 
and they must live in the longer term of the view more than anyone else, any other executives in the business, right? This is not just a damn thing. This is like ClickUp needs this. Unfortunately, you're almost always out of sync with the rest of the company. So it's, when, not, it's not just me that feels that way? <laughs> uh, yeah, right? It's like, I'm not that kind of kid. I don't know about you, CJ. It's like when the trip starts, I'm already bombed out because I'm thinking about the ending. And yeah. when it's actually ending, other kids were like bombed out. I'm already excited about the next trip. Mm. <laughs> so it's like when the business is hitting the challenge, like CFOs needs to cut through the noise and look for that green shoots to carry the business out of the tough time. And while everyone is was down, you got to be the optimist in the room, right? Look them in the eye and say, hey, we've got this. Like, we're getting there. But when everyone is celebrating, you, the CFO, really needs to look out for what the issues are out there, right? How do I resolve them before they become problems? So you need to be the sober one in the room in that case. It's incredibly challenging, but like I said, never a dull day and it makes it incredibly fun to me. I'm going to come back to that in a second about being the optimists. But when you think about how you spend your day, I had recently learned about this thing called the Eisenhower matrix, and it's where you split up what's urgent versus important. Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting to work on what's urgent in the day versus sketch out what's important. But the higher you rise in the org, you're paid to make the big decisions on Climb the important tree. things. Yes. Yeah. Climb the tree is a good one. We, we talked to Jenny Decker, the CFO of Front, and she had described it as playing eagle and playing mouse. So part of the day is playing eagle at a higher altitude, and then yeah. part of the day is playing mouse and actually getting into the weeds. There, there are a lot of uh, animal analogy for the CFO mentality. Another one is dolphin, right? You got to be above the water and down the middle of the water, above the water, constantly doing that. Damn, that's a good one. Dolphin. I'm stealing that. Dan, you'd mentioned being the optimist in hard times and then also being the rational sober one in like over exuberant times being the optimist in hard times how do you deal with that do you find it difficult or is it easy with your personality i think that i can tie that back to my early career journalism a little bit is i always carry this principle that when in doubt lean towards telling the full story Right. So mm. I think this is extremely important when the time is tough, everyone's looking at you and they're trying to pick up any signal that you're panicking. Right. So when I joined ClickUp in 2021, the company was at a turning point. We just raised a massive run of funding and it was at the peak of the go-go time. Everyone was thinking about raising another round in the year. Large, large spend plan was put in place to drive a very ambitious growth target, right? So it's not yeah. kind of strange to you. And two months in, the market just turned and the CEO pulled me aside and said, Dan, the board is asking us to cut, right? Cut, cut fast. So the challenge really for me and my CEO was we need to do it fast and get to the efficiency fast, but not causing the panic or the doubt about the fundamental health of the business. Because that's going to be a slippery slope, right? We yeah. will lose our good, our best people. So at that time, there was a lot of internal debate, right? Over how much transparency we should have with our company. So if they want to play it safe, they don't want to talk about macro environments so that we don't scare people. But my belief was when you're in doubt, laying towards telling the full story, during the very volatile time, right? During the wartime, Yes, people will pay some attention to what you're saying in all hands, but they're going to pay extreme attention to what you're not saying in all hands. Right? So 
What are you hiding? Why are you hiding? When people understand it, it's so much easier to get them engaged, right? They will feel like soldiers, not victims, if we're preparing them well for the war. No one should be surprised. So I convinced my leadership team and I did a series of almost like information sessions just to educate the company with the macroeconomic change, right? With some humor, with some lighthearted, hey, here is some slimmed down version of if this happened, that can happen, what kind of position we're in. And I just openly share our cash flow projection in variety of like market scenarios, right? That was a bold move when I talked to like a lot of CFOs and they're like, oh, you share your cash projections? Why yeah. not? It's a range, right? It's a scenario. And I share what we plan to do if each of the scenario comes true. And the employees even give me a nickname. They call me a econ professor Dan. And I ask, hey, is that because you fall asleep in my class? <laughs> because yeah. I bore you that much? Anyway, after all those sessions, people told me that, hey, I have always thought that finance was hard, right? You make me really understand what it means to us and why we need to do what we need to do. And then I'm telling you, CJ, amazing things happen. So when my finance team went on to execute the reduction, right? The cost reduction projects that usually will trigger very unpleasant interaction, some frictions, including cutting marketing and pulling back the hiring plan, governance in corporate spend and all that. We removed over 50 million of the cost from our cost structure in a very wow. short period of time. Yeah. And we pivoted from this grow at all cost to this lean, nimble fighting machine. There were some tough moments there. My CEO and I had to do a layoff in Q1 last year, and we looked at our employees in the eyes. Among the four scenarios we shared with you, we're trending towards scenario two, right, based on a missed quarter. So we need to make this difficult decision to get the efficiency back on track. RIF was never easy, but the transparency and the constant context sharing, context building with your employees definitely made it more truthful. Right? So I wouldn't say that I'm just a blind optimist in the room. But I say that, hey, we're going to get through this. Here are the upside, the downside. Let's just be truthful about that. Some would say it was a bold move how much you were transparent. But I think at the end of the day, people want to be treated like adults. And even if you don't know the answer, you can say these are the scenarios. Yes, absolutely. If you were a first-time CEO hiring for a new CFO, Dan, what's the number one quality you would test for? If I mean my CEO's shoes... Well, I hire someone like me, but yeah, <laughs> other than you, the trait that I was looking for is flexibly persistent. It's a, mm. a little interesting combo there. I'll explain what that means. Many people are saying that CFOs shouldn't change their mind, right? They mm. they should be like very firm. But I've seen a lot of CFOs through my career. The ones that haven't worked out are usually the those who seek to get their power from the rule creating. They say that we can't violate this, we cannot risk that, and they they evoke some rigid policy way too early. And those people, they don't last long, right? Anyone can say no. Anyone can can be the one kind of hold the gate and not letting other people in. But how do you move the business forward? So how do you be that flexible and also persistent people providing that balance in the business? So I think that it's the ones that are flexible. They seek the truth and they say, yeah, let's see how big we can make this thing, right? Here are some risks in doing this and we're going to mitigate this risk. I'm all bought in on the upside here. Great. Let's see 
or so just do a downside analysis just for fun, right? So you have to bring the persistent into the room. And then you level set with the CEOs and the other peers. Hey, if I see the risk increasing, I will let you guys know, right? We can call a code yellow if X is over 30%, a code red if X is over 70%. And we actually codify that. I train my executive team, codify that in our executive communication. Hey, I'm raising a code yellow here. I'm raising a code red there. Right, so they know exactly what I was referring to in terms of the risk tolerance there. So level set, and it might be that we have to change something later, but we'll get to that when that happens, right? Let's just get going, go go team. And I'm going to quote someone that I follow very closely, Joe Tsai. So he is the first CFO for Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba. So Joe famously said, I don't tell Jack what to do. I ask him, what do you want to do? I will help you do it in a much, much better way. So for CEOs, the CFO should be that one constantly watch out for the risk, of course. But yes, you're persistent, but you're not a blocker, right? So you're moving the business forward with your CEO. That's powerful. It reminds me of the saying, strong opinions held loosely. That's right. You know what? Joe became the CEO of Alibaba nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Very inspiring. I like how you said anyone can say no. There are a lot of people who I think do rise in organizations by being the one who points out why things can't work. But I've always been of the mind that it's a lot more fun to work with the people who find a way to say why something can work. Like it's so easy just to be a critic and sit on the sideline and say smart things and throw stones at an idea. Yeah, it's funny. I remember I used to walk into the room. It was a CFO meeting earlier in my career. Is that CFO sit in the one side of the table, everyone else sit on the other side of the table. <laughs> they were so afraid of him or dislike him. And it's just like, you can imagine the dynamics in the meeting. It's just like, he keeps shooting people down, right? right. And just like saying no, that end of the meeting, we got nothing, like nothing constructive, nothing actionable, moving business forward. So I, I swear to myself, I would never, never be that person being alone on one side of the table. Our listeners love frameworks. Do you have any that you rely upon for big decisions? The framework I use the most is actually not about how to make a decision. Right? It's more to address the root cause of the difficulties of making a decision. Right? So, you know, those moments, something in your gut, right? Something you just don't yeah. feel great when you're about to, to make a high stake decision. So how do, you, how do you address that? So the framework I want to share is a trust formula. Right? Okay. So in, in my job, Usually, the high-stake decision was stuck. It's not because we haven't seen enough data or we haven't heard enough reasoning. Right? We still can't get to that alignment with the important stakeholders. When you really dig deep, there's what's going on. It's about the trust deficit. Right? When the trust balance is high, you will make the decision with the imperfect information. Right? You know that like, you can get it done with this person. But when the trust balance is low, you will always, always ask for more data, more analysis. Even after a decision is made, you'll constantly try to relitigate it. Right? It will become a very low quality decision. So how to build trust with your team, with your peer, your CEO, I use this formula a lot. It is intimacy times credibility times reliability divided by self-interest. And so I'll go, yeah, I'll go over them one by That's one. That's hot. That's good. Let's do yeah. this. Okay. Intimacy is the level of emotional security around you. So sometimes I will have 
team coming in, presenting a case, and they openly talk about their concerns, their fears, and the obsession with the results, right? They talk about that. They thought about scenarios. So I feel like I can trust them. It will be an easy decision. But if that's missing, and I feel like I've been pitched to, I've been sold to, right? The trust balance is low. I usually seek out the other people's humanity in the more one-on-one intimate setup. Hey, we've talked about today, we've seen a lot of upside. Let's have a more open dialogue. What can go wrong? Right? So when I pressure test this risk today, you're a little dodgy about it. So bring me into your world. What concerns you? Something can blow up, right? So w- what is it? Like, I'm not quite hearing that. Once I get the onset part being said, I feel much more confident in the decision that I'm out to make there, right? That's the first one, intimacy. And the second one, the credibility. Credibility is how competent you seem, right? How much confidence you inspire in others. So that's why I emphasize on the details. I really dig into the details to test the credibility, right? So people sometimes call that executive getting into the weeds, right? I don't care. That's just testing the credibility. For a VP, I expect them to hold all the details. Let's take it offline. Let me get back to you. That's yellow flag, right? I learned that from Amazon, the Amazon days. In those high stake decision-making meeting, if the case is that important to you, then you should be obsessed. You should be sweating over every single detail about that. That's how I can trust that because you have the credibility. Reliability, will you do what you say? And do you have the consistent track record to do that? So it's pretty hard to change that. So when someone coming and pitch to me, do I see this person or team always deliver on time with high quality? If not, why would this time be different? And I, I will even openly ask them, hey, how did your last project go? Right? They'll be like, oh, missed the deadline, but we're okay. We're on track again. So I ask a question a lot. Einstein said it, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different results. How can I hedge the risk? How can I expect this time will be different? You didn't even finish your last project. So from my side, if I want to give it a green light, I usually will pair them up either with someone with higher reliability or have a more buttoned up plan B. So with my concern of reliability addressed, I usually feel much, much better about the decision. Then you kind of just eliminate that and see gut feel. Lastly is, I think, that the hot one, the, the self-interest one, right? That's the motive. I can trust you care about the business health and the company's success versus some of your personal self-orientation. I think the best example is for a sales leader to propose for a comp plan change and supposed to be good for the business and realize that it's just to open a loophole you know, for his team to make more money, right, at the cost of the business. So that's a trust bankruptcy. That type of situation requires confrontation right? Get ready for that heated conversation. So usually after a quick scan, I can evaluate the trust balance. And if all those four things we just talked about in trust formula agree, I will be more confident and more assured in the decision that we'll make for the business. That's an amazing formula. Do you think that there's one element of the formula that's more important than the others? I think the intimacy part is what's usually being ignored especially for the people in in a finance organization, right? Because in their eyes, everything is numbers, is empirical evidence. 
I love how you describe trust as like banking credits because you really do have almost like a bank account with each person. And depending on how high the balance is, you trust them implicitly and you can operate with less information. I love how you put it that way. Yeah, it's a credit line in a day. A credit line. There we go. We're all finance people. There we go. Credit line. I have a friend, shout out Mitch. He says that he always tells his team, I look a lot at your say to do ratio. What do you say you will do? And do you actually go out and do it? I think reliability is a huge Reliability, exactly. Yes. You had written down one other framework, the empty boat test. I'm very curious where this one's going to go. Okay. This is more for ourselves, DJ. So CFO is a high demanding job. You're the only one playing defense most of the time on executive yeah, team. That's right? good. <laughs> the only defender. The, Everyone else yeah, is playing attack. It's go, go, go. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, no, let PLC listen to me. So your number one job is to safeguard the business, allocate the resource in the most optimal way. We all know that. Naturally, that will lead to a lot of confrontation, right? A lot of conflict. Yeah. So how you, you navigate the conflict sometimes is really energy draining, right? So when... I caught myself in those reactive moments, for example, like being triggered by a statement or an idea, you know, usually stupid statement or stupid idea in yeah. our finance mind. I use this empty boat test. It is actually from uh, ancient Asian philosophy. You're on a boat in a fog mm. and you've seen another boat from far away heading your way. You're waving at the boat. No, 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 no. You're, you're about to crash in me. Don't come here. And the boat didn't listen and heading straight your way and even faster. So you're so angry. What kind of idiot is driving the boat? And then when you can see it clearly crashing into you, there's no one in the boat. It is an empty boat. Do you still feel angry? Right? So that angry is all from within. It's just totally, it can't be controlled by you. So I use this a lot to like see especially very high intense interaction as an empty boat opportunity for me, right? You don't make assumption. You don't make judgment anymore, right? As finance, sometimes we will hold ourselves to a higher moral standard, right? We see everyone's trying to take the company money and trying to maximize yeah. for themselves. But those is not helpful to have a highly constructive and authentic conversation. We need to constantly check ourselves. Hey, did I pass my empty boat test? I'm just angry at an empty boat, right? So if you do that, you're 10x more effective at your job, I promise you. Yeah, I get angry at empty boats, empty cars, empty bicycles. I got to work <laughs> on this. I'm, I'm writing this down. I'm going to re-listen to that. So those are two excellent frameworks, two that I got to work on. Contrarian opinions. Do you have any contrarian opinions worth sharing? Work-life balance. Work-time balance is a myth. Right? Work is always on. I think business leaders are professional athletes. We need to stay in our career shape. We need to feel a bit overwhelmed every day. Otherwise, the job is not stretching us, right? The job is not growing us. And someone out there can do your job better than you do if you don't kind of keep yourself in the career shape. Feeling overwhelmed, I think, is different from feeling stressed out. Stress can be managed. So one thing I always tell my leaders is trust that our day-to-day challenge or the friction will someday be all forgotten and replaced by the memories of year-to-year progress of building a great business together. So if you choose this path, the hustling and, you know, like being the career athletes, I think that the work will just occupy a bigger chunk of your time, right? It just can't change that. 
But that means you need to be more intentional in your life. For example, I have two young kids. I know that I can not spend four hours a day to play with them every day, but I'm very intentional in being a highly engaged mom in that one hour that I get to spend with them every day. I'm very playful and creative. I get them rolling on the floor laughing. If you think about your best childhood memory when you grow up, right, it's usually those snapshots, right, that stuck with you, right, that random prank that your your mom played with you and the brilliant bedtime story that your dad made up, right? That basketball game that it took you to. It's not how long they spend with you every day. It's really that kind of the quality and the intentional, the intentional love that you put into also building a great life. So yeah, there's never be a balance, but you got to make your choice there. To go back to something you said, Dan, about the stress and actually needing it, that resonated. And I'm saying this out loud and it may not sound right, but I almost have this like emptiness or a bit of like feeling a depression or being down if I don't have this like low burning functional level of stress in my life. I almost feel like empty without it. I don't know if that's kind of messed up to say though. (laughs) Yeah. Not micro stress, right? Just like, yeah, I need something (laughs) there like to keep me on edge. I can't, (laughs) I can't just be, you know, totally relaxed, but maybe that's a me thing. Yeah. You're not alone. (laughs) I wanted to ask, you've worked at some great companies. You've had a awesome and meteoric rise up the ladder to CFO. Along that way, do you have any super fun, surprising or crazy stories from your career that you want to share? I, I do have a story to share, but this, this is a story not about me. It's not oh, okay. my story, but has a huge impact on my career. 40 years ago in China, mm-hmm. there was a, a young woman who was the first finance hire at a pre-IPO company. That sounds familiar. Right? So Chinese economy was just opening up at that time, and the market was like Red Bull due to all this pent-up demand. So this young lady, she was a rising star in her company, CFO's right-hand person, super bright, very hardworking. However, just a few years later, she transferred to a much less demanding team because she had a kid. And she decided to give her best to this little kid. And now you can probably guess that this young lady back then is my mom. And the crazy part is I've always thought my mom as this chill administrative lady. (laughs) So I found that out. One day I was chatting with my mom's best friend, who is now a CFO at a public company. So I said, hey, like you taught me so much about business and wish my mom was like you. And she looked me in the eye and she said, your mom was the best finance leader among us when you were born. And she shared my mom's early career story with me. My mom never mentioned to me. And she said, your mom decided to choose you over her career. And your mom said yes to you. So you can say yes to whatever dream path that you chose to pursue. It was a very different time back then. So from that moment on, I knew that I wanted to be the CFO that my mom deserves to be. The story comes to full circle. Remember at the beginning, I said, my mom said, if you associate yourself with a number, you will always have a job. Yeah. Moms are pros. Wow. Story brought the heat. That was great. That was great. And it definitely impacted you today on your journey. All right. I'm going to take us into what we call our long ass lightning round. So the first question I'm going to ask you, can you give us an example of something you've messed up in your career before? Showing my homework. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm grateful for this pretty hard-charging VP, VP of Finance at Amazon, because he called me out while I was early in my career. I will never forget that. I needed to present a business case when I tried to break down my hypothesis, which I think is so smart. And he said, Dan, I don't care. I get to the punchline. And I will let you know if we need to dig into these details. So I really took it to heart and I pass it down as a gift. <laughs> Just, I don't care. Like, don't show me your homework and pass it to the next generations of the analysts. That's good. That's really good. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep yo stack. Sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Dan, can you walk me through what tools you use to get the job done today? What's your finance software stack look like? Well, we use NetSuite at the ERP. We did a migration from like this small, you know, QuickBook, early stage startup to NetSuite. For planning tool, we're just going live with Pigment, uh, mm. which is also a, a startup as a rising star in the f community. And we are building all the three financial statements, a lot of scenarios, models in Pigment. It is very executive business reporting friendly as well. And we use ClickUp. So I yeah. have to do a plug here. Yeah, I use ClickUp to manage my annual planning process, right? The beauty of that, it has so much rich context. I'm a context person, in case you haven't noticed yep. in my, throughout my interview, is because you're storing all this, you know, back and forth questions and, you know, sign off and all that in one place for anyone comes later. For example, you have a new hire of finance and this person can go into your annual planning task or project in ClickUp. You have all the communication and contacts data stored in that. I think that's the best tool for CFO to manage a complex multidimensional project. And then we use ClickUp to close the book, making sure we don't miss a bit. So it's very powerful for the CFOs wants to have the operational excellence in your organization. I never thought about using ClickUp to close the books. I'm actually going to try that now because we are ClickUp customers. That's a good recommendation. Oh, okay. I'll hook you up with some of the consultants from our team to share some of the best practices with you. Family and friends discount. Look at that. Yeah. Okay. Last one I got for you. What's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense and get by you in finance? (laughs) Sales rep having recurring charges at liquor store. And here's the best part. On his paternity leave. (laughs) (laughs) i rejected it shut down his card man life is rough i think his friends should give him a call or something (laughs) i know i think it's a cry for help if anything (laughs) this was full of wisdom and insights and laughs thank you dan so much for making time for the pod well thanks for having me cj i had a great time you're creating some amazing things here keep it up Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.